You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not so famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 129, September Campaign Part 21, The End. This week, a big thank you goes out to Tobias, Jim, Rhett, and David for choosing to become members. Uh, you can find out more information about becoming a member over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. A German invasion was always going to be challenging for Poland to survive. From a military perspective, Poland alone had little chance of successfully defending itself from its larger Western neighbor. But the speed of the German advance and then the combined German-Soviet victory was still shocking. The Polish military was the fourth largest in Europe in 1939. It had spent years preparing for the German attack, and the attack developed largely as Polish planners had expected. But still, the defense did not end well. By the end of the third week of September, truly organized Polish resistance had ended, and while there were a few more pockets of resistance that would surrender in the final days of September and into early October, these final units would surrender themselves well after there was any doubt in the eventual outcome. During the campaign, both civilians and soldiers all over Poland would be killed, injured, or forced to flee their homes, and the Polish military would be effectively destroyed. This episode will start with a discussion of numbers, before then shifting into an evaluation of the Polish and German military efforts. Next episode, which will be the final on the September campaign series, will cover the political structures of occupied Poland and the efforts of thousands of Poles to continue contributing to the Allied war effort throughout the course of the war. The simplest way to discuss the consequences of the September campaign, or any military campaign, is by looking at casualty figures. For these numbers, we generally have better sources for the German military, with official German reports after the campaign showing roughly 8,800 killed, 5,000 missing, and 30,000 wounded. The numbers still present some challenges, though, and the numbers change based on when exactly the numbers were reported. Over the course of the months and then years after the campaign ended, the German figures would be adjusted, especially around that missing in action part, uh, because they would be reclassified, often as, as killed. There is also some fuzziness involved in the German figures due to whether or not you include those that were killed or wounded based on accidents or mistakes away from the battle. It's common that German figures include all deaths during a particular period of time, regardless of the exact cause or where uh, the person was killed. On the Soviet side, the numbers are, well, honestly, a, a great question. 
the official Soviet figures only list around 1,500 deaths, which is laughably and unbelievably low, and these numbers were largely fueled by propaganda. It has to be higher than that, but I've not seen any solid figures. The Polish numbers are also a bit fuzzy for completely different reasons. Along with the typical problems of statistics for a nation that is invaded and occupied, the fact that the Polish military was attacked by two separate enemies adds additional complications. The number of Polish soldiers killed in action was probably around 66,000, with a further 135,000 wounded. However, it's very difficult to ascertain exactly how many Poles were killed or wounded in action against the Soviet Red Army. A much larger number of Polish soldiers would be captured by both armies, though. We, we do know that, especially for the Germans, who captured very large numbers of Poles within cities that would surrender to the German military during the campaign. The number of prisoners of war varies wildly, depending on your source, with numbers ranging from 775,000 up to above 900,000, with the numbers in, in most cases split roughly 2.5 to 1 between the Germans and the Soviets. One of the reasons that this number has such a wide range or wide variance is due to the exact classification of soldiers and civilians. You know, how you classify those that surrendered can, can really, really change the numbers. Along with the military casualties, there were also thousands of Polish civilian casualties, due both to specific violence against them as well as random deaths caused by artillery or air attack or other causes. It's very likely that the number of civilian deaths was around 100,000 just during the September campaign, so that's September 1st through roughly October 5th, but it could be higher or lower than that number. This is mostly due to the fact that the September campaign was just the beginning of the death and suffering experienced by Poles during the war, with around 5.5 million killed in total during the Second World War. This makes it hard sometimes to know the exact date of death of many individuals, especially during this early period of the war when there was so much war and occupation to come over six years of it. With so many military and civilian casualties, the obvious topic of conversation is an evaluation of the performance of the Polish military. As with any national military, they were charged with defending the state, and in this case, the Polish military was not successful in that goal. There were a lot of challenges that the Polish military faced, starting with simple numbers. The German military was always going to be larger than what Poland could create or sustain. Population and economics were just too much in the favor of the Germans. But there were political requirements that exacerbated this problem, particularly around the political requirement that the Polish corridor be defended. Due to Polish fears that the Germans would invade, occupy the corridor, and then appeal for peace— it was felt that Polish forces had to be dedicated to the defense of that region, and so just so that basically the Germans were forced to begin military actions that would prompt a Western response, instead of just being able to occupy the area without fighting. This resulted in Army Pomorsia and all of the Polish troops closer to the coast being placed in a sacrificial position. It was well known that they would not be able to defend against the German attacks that would hit them from both the east and the west, but that's where they had to be placed. Further south along the Polish-German border, the Polish forces had to be placed closer to the border due to the presence of large population centers near the border like Krakow and Poznan. These cities could not just be abandoned, if only because of the number of Polish soldiers that could be mobilized from their populations in the days and weeks after the start of a war. 
This concern was amplified due to the late nature of Polish mobilization, making it critical that the larger cities in western Poland be held for as long as possible, with every day resulting in more mobilized Polish forces. All of these concerns pushed the Polish army into what was, on its own, a very bad and overextended position at the start of the campaign. They were weak everywhere, and considering no other factors, it would have been better for them to have positioned all of their troops further east on a shorter line closer to Warsaw and the Vistula. Zooming in a bit on the action, the performance of Polish troops at a tactical level was often quite good, especially during the early days of the campaign before the mass retreats began. As we discussed in several episodes earlier in this series, Polish units were frequently able to repulse German attacks, at least temporarily, and there were many instances where strong Polish positions were only captured due to failure of other Polish units in more exposed positions to hold off the German attack on the left or right flank of those stronger positions. Along with the actions of Polish soldiers, Polish anti-tank and artillery forces also did quite well. Their numbers were just too low to make a major difference in the campaign. As with any military campaign which results in defeat, there was no shortage of criticism for the leader of the Polish army, Marshal Edward Ridge Schmigu. I think there are criticisms that are both very fair and probably unfair of Ridge Schmigu, and the unfair category is anything related to army positioning or objectives. As just discussed, there were political requirements that largely dictated which pieces of Poland were and were not defended. These requirements simply spread the Polish army too thin. Over the years, there have been many suggestions on what changes Ridge Smigwu could have made. I've read several in books researching these episodes, such as a greater emphasis on defending the cities of Western Poland instead of defending the entire border. But all of these suggestions introduce other problems. In the example I just mentioned of concentrating troops around the cities, that probably would have just ended up with more troops being surrounded and forced to surrender in those cities. They might have occupied some German troops for a few additional days, but then those troops would not have been able to defend areas further to the east, like Warsaw or along the Vistula. The core problem was that there were just not enough men and not enough equipment to defend against a German attack, regardless of how exactly the available resources were allocated. In the area of criticism that I think is probably more valid would be Ridge Smigwu's movements during the campaign. He would choose to evacuate Warsaw on the night of September 6th and begin a series of movements that would result in the Polish general staff being on the move for the next 12 days before they crossed into Romania on September 18th. During that time, they would be based in several different cities in eastern Poland. During the campaign and immediately after, some Polish leaders and soldiers would accuse Ridge Smigwu of, of cowardice due to fleeing the capital at that time. But the greater problem was that the constant movement of the Polish general staff made it difficult to coordinate what was left of Polish forces. There was little chance of stopping the German advance on the Vistula, the Narav, and elsewhere, but the reduced ability of the Polish military leaders to control the wider situation and coordinate larger groups of soldiers certainly did not make things any better. I think another valid criticism of Ridge Smigwu is that he was overall too focused on retreat after the opening days of the campaign, putting a much greater emphasis on retreating east and south rather than in any kind of proactive action against the German invaders. One of the biggest examples of this was Army Poznan, where General Kutzriba wanted to counterattack with Army Poznan, which was largely left alone by the German invaders, but he was ordered to continue the retreat. 
General Kutsuiba would then set the opposite example on the Bajura with a counterattack that was launched days after Rid Smigwu uh, evacuated Warsaw when he had lost touch, kind of, uh, with the events at the front. Other such counterattacks, especially early in the campaign, may have disrupted the German advance and bought the Poles more time, although, you know, all of this would have been worthless due to the Soviet invasion on September 17th, so it's kind of just an academic conversation. These types of criticisms would follow Rijsmigwu into exile in Romania. After the Polish government and military leaders crossed the border, Romania changed its policy and started to restrict who it would let transit through the nation and out into the rest of Europe. The Poles had counted on the Romanians letting civilians and soldiers leave Romania for other areas of Europe. Specifically, they, they wanted to go to France. But this policy was changed by the Romanian government due to concerns that it would antagonize the Germans. This resulted in Rijsmigwu being stuck in Romania until December 15, 1940. By that time, he had resigned from his position due to actions that had been taken in France. After the results of the September campaign, Rijsmigwu was not a popular figure among Polish leaders in exile. On September 18th, General Sikorsky would be placed at the head of the Polish army in France. Sikorsky was not Rijsmigwu's choice. He wanted General Ferek Blazinski placed in the position instead. Sikorsky was chosen due to Rijsmigwu's decline in stature after the events of the September campaign, as well as the generally high opinion of Sikorsky held by French leadership. In general, the Polish government in exile would be heavily critical of Rijsmigwu, and he would eventually resign from his position at the head of the army on October 27, 1939. Overall, Ridge Smigwu made mistakes, but his critics would place the blame at his feet for things that were outside of his control, especially when there was such a small chance of success in a war against Germany without immediate help from the Western Allies, assistance that did not materialize after September 3rd. Speaking of those Western Allies, while they were not directly involved in the fighting in Poland, it's worth considering the, their actions as we evaluate the performance of the various groups within the September campaign. Britain and France would enter the war on September 3rd, as they had agreed to do if Poland was attacked by Germany. The entry of the two Western nations was critical to Polish defensive plans because their only real hope of being able to successfully defend against a German invasion was if a second front was opened on Germany's western border as quickly as possible. Before the war, French and British leaders had gave assurances to the Polish leaders that such a front would be opened as soon as France declared war, which would take the form of a French attack across the German border. Then, after September 3rd, nothing really happened. A few small French units would make a move across the border, advance until they hit resistance, and then they stopped. In the air, the much-vaunted Royal Air Force would not launch any bombing campaigns against German targets other than a few naval targets in September. It is easy to criticize the French and British leaders for their lack of action, and I've criticized them during these episodes, and they deserve it, based on the expectations that they set with Polish leaders before the German invasion. But, if we look forward a bit to the events of May and June 1940, what becomes very clear is that the ability of the French and British militaries was far less than what was expected of them before September 1939, both by themselves, their allies in Poland, and also their enemies in, in Germany. It can be hard to remember that the French and British were considered two of the strongest militaries in Europe and the world. They were feared by the German military leaders. Now, those evaluations would end up being 
totally and completely wrong. I don't think that completely removes sort of their responsibility for what they told the Polish leaders before the war, though. I don't know if that would have changed the course of events. You know, uh, the Polish leaders and Poland's military was still very set on, on not allowing German border modifications at this time. But at least they would have had realistic expectations of what they were facing and what help would be given, especially very early in the campaign. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances, I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On the German side of the campaign, even though they had decisively defeated the Polish military, everything had not gone perfectly. At a high level, there were two major mistakes made by the German leaders, the first being the failure to account for Army Poznan, and the second being the expansion of objectives in eastern Poland during the second phase of the campaign. The first mistake was just a complete lack of focus on Army Poznan, which was allowed to exist between the advances of Army Group North and Army Group South. The eventual outcome of this was the Bajura counterattack, which came relatively late in the campaign after most Polish resistance was already waning. However, if Army Poznan would have launched their counterattack several days before, then it might have had a real impact, particularly against the hard-charging troops of Army Group South. This is what the leader of the army, General Kutsriba, wanted to do, but Reid Smigwu and the Polish High Command would not allow it. This lack of focus on Army Poznan became even more apparent when the armored and motorized forces of Army Group North, which had been focused against Army Pomorsha, were loaded up on trains and moved to East Prussia. The original plan called for these troops to push along the Vistula towards Warsaw, right into the pocket that Army Poznan and the remnants of Army Pomorsha would retreat to in the days before the Bajura counterattack. 
When these German troops were instead moved east, there were no German units capable of overtaking the retreating Polish units, and so they were allowed the breathing space to regroup and prepare for their attack. The troops were moved due to an expansion of German goals. No longer satisfied with a direct pincer on Warsaw, the northern pincer was extended hundreds of kilometers to the east to capture more territory with an accelerated timeline. This would also take several armored and motorized divisions out of the German effort for almost a week while they were repositioned. They were then sent off chasing Polish forces in eastern Poland, in many cases even crossing the demarcation line of what was going to be Soviet territory. Neither of these mistakes would cost the Germans the campaign, but that was due to the inability of the Polish forces to capitalize on the German mistakes, not that they weren't mistakes by the Germans. In the end, you know, they ended up being gambles that paid off. The Luftwaffe would lose 285 aircraft over Poland, with about that many damaged, while the Polish Air Force would lose about 325 aircraft during the campaign, just as a comparison. Most of the Polish Air Force was destroyed, but not on the ground as the Luftwaffe attempted to do during the early days of the campaign, and instead the limited number of, of Polish fighters and bombers that were available would be able to remain active throughout the campaign. Eventually almost 100 would be able to fly across the border to Romania. Some aircraft of the Germans performed quite well during the campaign, like the Bf-110C, while others would see their shortcomings sort of decrease their ability to be effective over Poland. This was particularly the case with the BF-109E, which had a very limited range, and so the Germans found it really challenging to keep the BF-109 within operational range of the German advance due to how quickly the line advanced sort of beyond its comfortable range from the airfields that existed at the time. The Luftwaffe would prove to be particularly effective in their attacks against retreating Polish formations, with both bombing and strafing of Polish military columns, greatly disrupting the attempts of Polish units to retreat while still sort of maintaining some kind of order while the advancing German ground forces were pursuing them. The Luftwaffe would be significantly less effective in their attempts to execute strategic bombing campaigns against Polish cities, particularly Warsaw. They certainly caused damage, there can be no denying that, to both the city and to the Polish civilians who, you know, lived in that city. But the Luftwaffe was unable to bomb the city into submission as it hoped to do. This is again another area where I think the criticisms of the Luftwaffe should be considered against the such general misunderstanding of what was required to execute a successful bombing campaign during this time period. Undoubtedly, the most famous part of the Polish campaign is the use of German armored forces and their role in the fighting. In several areas, these troops performed very well, particularly in the advance of the 10th Army from Łódź and then on to Warsaw, and then also those forces in eastern Poland, after they pushed through the Polish resistance on the Narov, they were able to, you know, cover a lot of distance very quickly. But these quick advances revealed a few challenges that the panzer divisions would have to resolve in future campaigns if they wanted to translate their success into those other campaigns. The first problem was supplies. As there were times when they were outrunning their supply columns by hundreds of miles. This was partially due to the simple lack of trucks and other transport units, which required more focus in upcoming campaigns. Another challenge for the Panzer units were the large presence of Panzer I and Panzer IIs within the divisions. 
These tanks were thinly armored light tanks that had been built years before the start of the war. By 1939, they would prove to be very vulnerable to a variety of Polish anti-tank weapons. This was not really a surprise for the German military, and they were pushing hard to replace all of these light tanks with Panzer III and IV medium tanks. But even these newer models were quite vulnerable to Polish anti-tank weapons, and experiences in Poland would prompt an increase in the amount of armor in future revisions of the two designs. These newer vehicles were only available in small numbers at the start of the campaign, but they would be a much larger percentage of the German armored forces in 1940 and beyond. Another major change was that of the light divisions. Along with the panzer divisions, the Germans had come up with the light division concept. The idea behind these units is that they would have they would be armored units, but they would have less firepower than an actual armored division, but they would also be equipped with enough trucks to haul those tanks around to various parts of the battlefield or wherever they were needed in the campaign. The tanks would then get off the trucks and go into combat. Then when the enemy was dealt with, they would load back up onto the trucks and move to a different area. The theory was that this would make the armored units more mobile and save wear on the tanks and, you know, the usage of fuel. Tanks were notoriously bad at using fuel. But the light divisions never really worked out the way that was hoped. It was found that it was difficult to make use of the theoretically greater mobility of these units, and that their lack of firepower was a serious problem. Also, even if they were somewhat useful, the number of heavy transport vehicles that the light divisions required just monopolized the the heavy motor transport of the German army, which reduced the transport capability of all other units. Because of these challenges, the four light divisions would be disbanded, and their armored units incorporated into new armored divisions, and their transport troops spread out to other areas of the army. This meant that the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th light divisions would become the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th panzer divisions. Not everything went poorly for the German armored units, though. I don't want to be too negative here. There were real successes. One standout piece of the divisions were the motorcycle battalions that were present in each one. These units would prove themselves time and time again, both in Poland and afterwards, due to their ability to quickly move across the battlefield, you know, upwards of 100 kilometers a day, and still be able to bring with them enough firepower to take objectives and then hold them against enemy attacks. The motorcycle battalions would prove to be one of the unsung heroes of multiple early war German campaigns. Overall, during the September campaign, the Germans would lose about 500 tanks. That number includes both tanks that were completely destroyed and those that were damaged beyond repair, even though they were recovered. This was a lot, a little under 20% of the tanks committed to the campaign, but also, that number is not as bad as it initially appears. This was because the vast majority of those tanks that were lost were Panzer I and IIs, which were rapidly becoming obsolete, especially in future campaigns, and the Germans were planning on getting rid of anyway. The overall impression left by the Panzer divisions on the German leadership, though, resulted in Hitler ordering the number of Panzer divisions to be doubled, and he wanted them doubled very, very quickly. This expansion, or this planned expansion of the German armored divisions, also runs us into one of the biggest problems that the armored divisions had by the end of the campaign, and that was the maintenance backlog that developed among all German armored and motorized units. There would be a lack of spare parts and production capacity during the campaign and immediately after, as everything had to be fixed up and and prepared for the next major attack. 
This was a major problem because the initial plans put forward by Hitler was for the attack against France to take place before the end of 1939. The initial date was November 16th, which meant that large numbers of troops needed to be moved from Poland and into Western Germany as quickly as possible. This very quick turnaround would eventually prove to be impossible, and the attack in the West would be delayed until the spring of 1940, mostly due to the desire to re-equip, restock, and prepare German forces for the next effort. 